Well, good morning, everyone. How you doing? Are you guys ready for Easter weekend? I don't know if I am. I'm, I'm excited about it. Don't get me wrong. Seven services is going to be a lot, but it's going to be fun. How many of you are going to be here at seven o'clock on Sunday? Huh? Mm. Slackers, the rest of the... Hey, listen, uh, I'm really... Smita was here this weekend from Mahima. Uh, she, uh, this past week, meeting with some of our leaders, and it was just great to see her and talk with her. And let me tell you, I get choked up when I think about the work they're doing with these underage girls in, in, in Kolkata. And uh, if you could just see it, uh, you would be changed forever if you could see it up close and personal. I just want to thank you for being part of it. And uh, if you're not really sure what it's about or maybe what All In is about, go to our website. There's a whole section there. we got a lot of media videos you can watch. It'll explain it all, but uh, I think you'll be impressed by it and excited by it. So thank you for what you're doing. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, the New Testament, 1 Peter 3. Okay, so uh, as most of you know, we're in a series called Aliens. Uh, it's a study of this letter the Apostle Peter wrote to Christians in the early church, um, explaining that because of their faith in Jesus, because of their reverence for God, their desire to obey what God says is right and good and healthy and best for us, he said that they were going to be misunderstood sometimes by the culture, and they were going to be viewed as a strange and even alien-type people. And uh, as we noted from the get-go, you know, Peter was a fisherman by trade, right? I mean, he, he wasn't highly educated. Uh, he didn't have degrees in literature or creative writing. He wasn't a celebrated poet, author, or journalist. And so uh, his writing style is very, very simple. Um, in many respects, it's like a run-on sentence. Just this ongoing stream of thought, one of reason, result, cause, and effect. Peter uses terms like therefore, uh, now, and since to grammatically link his thoughts together. In fact, since late in chapter 1, he's been describing how as Christians we live differently from those around us, how we, we, live, uh, we love each other um, sincerely and deeply from the heart, and how we're kind and honest, generous, forgiving people who've experienced the grace of God, and that spiritual reality changes us from the inside out. Peter says one of the things that people notice about us, one of the unique things, is our willingness to submit, you know, to voluntarily yield to those in authority, and to yield our own desires uh, and needs to the needs of those around us. Uh, he talks about submission in, in relation to government and in the workplace. And then last week, uh, we saw him address husbands and wives, emphasizing their need to follow Christ's example and submit mutually to one another. And so, <clears throat> as we pick up in chapter 3, verse 8, Peter returns to talking about the way that um, uh, we're to live in relationship to the greater and broader context of the church. And this is what he says, starting verse 8. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. Uh, they must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now notice again how Peter links what he's about to write to what he's already said by using a connecting word, the word finally, which to some degree indicates at least an intention to bring some of his thoughts to a close. It's like Peter saying, 
hey, listen, as I've been telling you guys for two and a half chapters now, your conduct impacts the world around you as much as or even more so than your claims. Actions speak louder than words. So he says, be consistent, live good lives, not just in, in relation to government and into the workplace or even in the home, but also in the context of the church, the community of God's people. And then he proceeds to explain how to do that and then why we're to do it. So first the how. And um, Peter offers five terms that describe the manner by which we in the church are to live together and to treat one another. And by the way, don't miss the phrase here, all of you, which means that there are no exceptions to this, okay? It applies to everybody in the church. Peter says, finally, all of you be like-minded. The Greek literally reads, have one mind. And it carries the idea of, of agreement, unity in, in attitude and in purpose. Uh, some translators use our English word harmony to represent the text, which is fine. Whatever the case, Peter's point is that despite many of the differences, many of the things that make us different um, in the church, you know, education, socioeconomics, gender, race, talents, traditions, uh, despite of all those things, all those differences, when it comes to who we are in Christ and why we're here as the church, we have one mind. We're like-minded. We're in agreement uh, on what is most essential. It's like a football team that has, you know, 40 to 60 players, all of them different shapes and sizes uh, with different strengths and talents, uh, holding different roles and responsibilities. Uh, each player may have uh, individual preferences regarding certain plays or defensive schemes. They may even hold varying opinions on the overall game plan. But make no mistake about it, a team of players who are all very different only become successful when they get on the field, align together, and commit to a common goal, winning. The same is true for the church. I mean, look around the room here. We're all so very different. We come from different backgrounds, different ethnicities. We hold to different opinions. We have different preferences, different gifts, talents, abilities, resources. We have different roles. We fulfill different responsibilities. And yet, the experiencing of God's grace through faith in Jesus connects us. And our desire for others to know him and experience that same grace unifies us. See, harmony, harmony doesn't mean we're clones that agree on everything. It does mean we get along because we're of one mind. Um, it is unity, unity without uniformity, you see. Uh, our staff recently took what's called the Strength Finders test. Uh, some of you may be familiar with it. It's used in uh, many businesses. It's basically an assessment tool that helps identify in, an individual's strengths. And the theory is that every person has a certain number of fixed character attributes, which in combination affect that individual's ability to uh, develop certain skills and uh, excel in certain fields. And the goal is to identify the strengths of an individual in an organization so that they can be utilized in an effective and suitable position, thus helping to reduce turnover, uh, improve morale, and improve the organization's overall performance. And so you take the test, it gives you your top five strengths. I took it, my number one strength, according to the test, is harmony, which reflects the belief that there's little to be gained from unnecessary conflict and friction in an organization. And so I seek to hold 
those to a minimum and strive to establish common ground, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But here's the reality. Disagreement, friction, opposing preferences and opinions are all part of life. Even life in the church. There's just, there's no way around it as, as Christians, as human beings. I mean, we'd like to agree on everything all the time, but realistically, that's just never going to happen. We are never going to agree on everything, even on certain matters of faith, theology, and practice. And so if our hope for harmony rests in us always agreeing, uh, we are going to be sorely disappointed. Uh, in his book, This World, Playground or Battleground, the well-known author and pastor A.W. Tozer once explained it this way. He said, some misguided Christian leaders, and I read that and I thought, is that me? <laughs> is he talking about me here? <laughs> some misguided Christian leaders feel they must preserve harmony at any cost, so they do everything possible to reduce friction. They should, however, remember there's no friction in a machine that's been shut down for the night. Turn off the power, and you'll have no problem with moving parts. Also remember, there's a human society where there are no problems, the cemetery. <laughs> the dead have no differences of opinion. They generate no heat because they have no energy, no motion. But their penalty is sterility and a complete lack of achievement. What then is the conclusion of the matter? That problems are the price of progress. That friction is the concomitant, the concomitant of motion. Uh, that a live and expanding church will have certain quota of difficulties as a result of its life and its activity. A spirit-filled church will invite the anger of the enemy. Tozer's right. A living, thriving, expanding, difference-making church is going to experience a certain amount of challenges and disagreements. I mean, God understands that. He's neither surprised by it nor displeased by it. His concern isn't will disagreements happen, but how will we handle them when they do? As Tozer says, a church in which God's spirit is at work also invites the work of the enemy who seeks to incite anger and division and to exploit disagreements for his own evil devices. Let me tell you something. In today's secular culture, I am absolutely convinced that a key to the church's spiritual effectiveness moving forward into the future rests in our ability as Christians and our willingness to sometimes agree to disagree on non-essentials and to accept some of our differences and rally around the things that unite us, specifically around the one who unites us, Jesus and the gospel of grace. And as long as we do that, I, I'm absolutely convinced our ability to impact our community, our culture, our world remains very strong. But given our sinful inclinations, Jesus recognized the challenge of that, and that's why he prayed for us. He said, Father, I pray for those who will believe in me. That's us. I pray for those who will believe in me, that all of them may be one, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they be so, that the world may believe you have sent me. Here's my Ray K summary. Like-mindedness and unity of purpose was and is Jesus' desire for his people, the church. And that's Peter's point. And then he writes, be sympathetic. And it's interesting, Peter uses the Greek term pathos here, which meant emotions or feelings, and he adds to it the prefix with. So literally, to be sympathetic is to feel with someone, to share emotion. 
Uh, our church recently lost a long time and loved member. His name was John Montgomery. And uh, John was a great guy. He was, a, he was an inspiration to me. And I spoke at his memorial service yesterday, and it was a, it was a great celebration of his life. But I, as I was preparing for it, I was just thinking of the grief his family has been experiencing. And I realized that oftentimes there really isn't much I or we can say or do to relieve the pain of that kind of a situation. I mean, this is a family that has suffered the loss of a husband, a father, and and a truly godly man. And so as as I was preparing for it, I found myself sympathizing with them, feeling with them this deep sense of sadness and loss. I mean, we all know painful things happen in this world, right? Suffering is a reality. And so when those around us suffer, we may not have answers to all the questions or, or even a reasonable solution to the problem. But we can walk with people and we can support people and we can listen to their hurts and their hopes and their dreams and their fears and we can, we can tell them we're sorry. Sympathy is a gift anybody can give. And it's not that we completely understand necessarily or experience the exact same pain, but sympathy is found, is found in imagining ourselves in that person's situation. Do that, and you will feel with the person who's sick with an illness. You will feel with the one who's in pain over a broken relationship. You will feel with the sadness of a a widow in grief. You will feel the indignation over crimes and injustices committed against the innocent. You'll weep with those who weep. You'll hurt with those who've been mistreated, exploited, abused, forgotten. As Christians, we should never become calloused and insensitive to the pain of others. Because the fact is, you never know. Someone else's suffering today could be mine or yours tomorrow. And we're going to need each other. Be sympathetic. Next, Peter says, love one another. And he uses the same term he did back in chapter 1, verse 22, when he wrote, love one another sincerely and deeply from the heart. It's the term uh, Philadelphia, it's where we get our word Philadelphia, it means brotherly love. See, as a point of emphasis, Peter revisits this idea that as Christians, we're children of God, we're sons and daughters, and we're all part of, of a community, members of God's family, who are to care for one another as brothers and sisters. But as we all know, families don't always work out that way, right? Sometimes siblings don't behave in ways that are loving. Within our own families, when it comes to love, we sometimes say one thing and act another. And the same is true in God's family, the church. It's really easy to say what we're supposed to say. Yeah, oh yeah, we're a family. Love love fellow Christians, love the church, love my brothers and sisters in Christ. And then turn around and do something or fail to do something and we communicate the very opposite of, of love. Peter's saying as Christians, look, you are to love one another sincerely and deeply like a family. Don't fake it. Don't just say it. Show it. Do it. Basically, Peter is repeating what he heard Jesus teach. Jesus said, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. You get the message? Love, love, love. Jesus didn't just say it. He did something about it. He proved his love for us. Do we do the same to others? In short, even when we're different, even though we're different and don't always agree, in Christ, 
we're still brothers and sisters who are to be there for each other. When others abandon us, as Christians, we stick together like family. And I don't know about you, but for me, to me, that's appealing. That's really appealing because we all want to be loved, even, even at our worst. I do. But here's the hard part. Jesus also said, loving those who love you is easy. Caring for people we like is a no-brainer. But if you love and care only for your friends and relatives, he said, how is that unique from the rest of the world, from everybody else? Even the pagans do that. Jesus said, do to others as you would have them do to you, even your enemies. Love your enemies and do good to them. Translation, it's great to love those you love or even those you like and agree with, but you also need to love those who are different, those you disagree with, maybe who get on your nerves, maybe who are unlovable, even your enemies, those who curse you, mistreat you, malign you. Love them unconditionally. Why? Because that kind of crazy love, unexpected love, makes a huge difference in the world. People take notice of that. And so this week, here's the deal. Pick somebody in your circle of friends, family, acquaintances, work partners, whatever. Pick somebody to love. Not just someone you like, not someone who's easy, Pick, get a little crazy, get a little nuts, pick someone who's a challenge. Think of one thing that you could do for that person that demonstrates Christ-like love and grace. Do it. Do that thing that will cause them to say, what was that about? And then see what God does with it. Peter says, be compassionate. And the Greek term he uses here is really weird. It literally, it translates, have strong bowels. Have good guts. That's weird to me. Why would he use that word? You know, why would he, is he, is he, is he suggesting that we have healthy, vigorous intestinal tracts? No, I don't think he's saying that. He uses this term figuratively. It's like when we say, hey, so-and-so has guts, man. They have guts. What do we mean? It means they have courage. His point is, look, anybody can sit around and be sympathetic with someone, anybody can sit around and talk about loving others, loving strangers, loving, loving even your enemies. Anybody can talk about it. The, the real issue is, are we going to be truly compassionate? Are we going to do something, something to help? Are we going to get involved? Are we going to serve? Are we going to give? Are we going to sacrifice for the good of another, for a stranger, for an enemy even? That takes guts. One of the things I so appreciate about, appreciate about our church is historically, you, you guys have proven that you have, you have strong bowels. You have, you have good guts, as Peter put it. Peter said it, not me. Okay, so let's just make it. You have good guts. In other words, you're courageous. When you see a need, you become aware of a need, you do something to help. I mean, take supporting the work of IJM and, 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 and Mahima too. And rescuing these young underage girls who've been, who've been put into slavery and sexually exploited. Man, that's just one example of guts. And it's a, but it's a big deal. In addition, your, your ongoing commitment to give and, and serve and sacrifice for ministry initiatives, both here on site and, and then locally, um, for the sake of families and those who are marginalized and, and the needs of the community, all doing it in the name of Jesus, it's a... It's a tangible way of, of, of loving each other, but also loving the community, loving the world, 
and the people in it. And it makes a difference. And I appreciate your willingness to go all in to make that difference. And it, you know what? It takes guts to do it. It takes guts. But Peter says, but while you're doing it, make sure you're humble. Be humble. In other words, don't do any of this with a sense of pride or superiority. Never help somebody, give to somebody, serve somebody, and then turn around and look down on them. That's humiliating. And yet there are some, even in the context of the church, who kind of like to play the superiority game. And for them, doing what is right and good and generous is sort of a way of making themselves feel better, seem better. And they cop an attitude, like a look-at-me attitude, look how good I am. Peter says, don't do that. He says, be humble. And genuinely humble people never look down on others because they don't compare themselves to others. They compare themselves only to Jesus. That way, they remain keenly aware of how sinfully broken they are, how we all are, and we're all in equal need of God's mercy. Those who are humble are slow to speak of others' faults and failures and slow to point those out. But when they do, they do, they do so kindly, gently, graciously, because it's for the benefit of the other person. Humble people are loyal, even through challenging relationships. They don't just separate and, and, and run off when they don't get their own way or they disagree. Humble people are flexible and non-essentials versus being dogmatic about everything. Humble people invite and value instruction. Humble people submit. Humble people don't grumble, complain, or wallow in self-pity, but are genuinely content and thankful for everything and trust God in all things. Humility means that I, that we, recognize that we don't know it all. And we're not always right. And we're not the center of the universe. And our personal opinions and our personal preferences and our personal needs aren't the most significant things that exist. In fact, humility is all about me and you seeing and treating others as more important and better than ourselves. Humility is being more like Jesus, who sacrificed himself for others. And let me tell you something, man. Our world is looking for that. They're looking for what Peter's describing a place, a community where there is harmony and there is sympathy and there is love and there is compassion, there's genuine humility. And my prayer is that they're going to find that among us because that's how we'll live together. But check out the other things Peter says about how we're to um, go about life. In verse 9 he says, And do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but on the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. And again, Peter has Jesus in mind. Uh, I mean, remember how Peter ended chapter 2, right? Saying, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example you should follow. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Reiki translation. Jesus never sought revenge. He never returned evil for evil, insult with insult. He didn't give his enemies what they deserved. Instead, through his humble sacrifice, he graciously offered them what they didn't deserve. Divine favor, forgiveness, life. 
to those who would believe. Grace. And here's the thing. If Jesus humbled himself for you and me so we might inherit life, can't we do the same thing for somebody else? Can't we do it for the world? As men and women who have received God's grace, can't we extend grace to people? We should. Notice verse 10, Peter explains why. Why we're to live in harmony, sympathy, love, compassion, humility, not retaliating, but extending grace. Two reasons. First has to do with enjoying life. He says, for whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. And I don't, I don't know if you realize it. This is a quote from Psalm 34. Peter uses it to press the idea that for a Christian to enjoy life to its fullest means we cannot give in to evil. Instead, we refrain from it and we do what is right and what is good. Because really, what's the alternative here? The opposite of harmony is what? Discord. The opposite of sympathy, indifference. The opposite of love, hate. The opposite of compassion, fearful passivity. The opposite of humility, arrogance. The opposite of grace, revenge. The opposite of blessing, cursing. The opposite of honesty, deceit. What kind of life is one that is divisive, indifferent, hateful, fearfully passive, arrogant, vengeful, full of cursing and deceit? It's a miserable one. That's what it is. Don't be fooled. Evil always ends in misery. And that's why the Apostle Paul writes to Christians in the church, and he says the exact same thing. He says, look, live in harmony with one another. Be of one mind. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Don't repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. He says, then he says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge. On the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Is that easy? No, that's not easy. That is not easy. Why? Because we're sinfully selfish creatures by nature. We want what we want, how we want it, when we want it. And because of that, peace between us can be somewhat, of a, uh, somewhat elusive and, and hard to achieve. But as Christians, we must actively turn and seek and pursue peace in whatever way we can. Or as Paul puts it, in as much as it depends on me, as much as it depends, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do what you can. Do what you need to preserve the peace. In February, um, my wife Marge and I visit our parents in Florida for a short couple days to check in on them, make sure everything's okay. And uh, her parents live down on the southwest coast. And so we were down there. One day we went for a walk on the beach. And the Gulf of Mexico was just gorgeous. It was a, it was a beautiful day. Blue sky, rippling water, white sandy beach. We sat down on a, on a, um, on a log, just kind of, you know, kind of absorbing it all. It was just absolutely gorgeous. But I tell you what, man, you know, no matter how wonderful that moment was, no matter how beautiful the environment, the fact is I would not have enjoyed it very much if I had an abscessed tooth. Right? You know what I mean? You know, the same is true of life. God has favored us with so much life, family, friends, a healthy, loving church, the opportunity to make a difference in the world, freedom. We have the beauty of creation, creation surrounding us every single day, but we will never fully enjoy any of it 
if our life is abscessed and infected by anger and hate and deceit and bitterness and arrogance and revenge or other evil destructive things. We'll just be miserable and we'll end up spewing and spreading our infection to those around us. Peter says, don't do that. Good and gracious living is to your benefit. It leads to the enjoyment of life, the enjoyment of relationships, the enjoyment of the favor of God. But there's another reason we're commanded to live this way. Why? Verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In short, Peter says, hey, God's paying attention. He sees what we're doing, how we're doing it. He listens to what we're saying, how we're saying it. I mean, understand something. We are not good just to be good. We're not even good for the sake of others. We are good for the sake of God. To represent him well. And because we know that he knows what's right for us. And we recognize that our lives are not only being watched by our world, but watched by the creator of it. And we're under his merciful supervision. And a day will come when we'll each stand before him and we'll give an account of how we've conducted ourselves toward others inside and outside the church. Peter says, God's ears are attentive to the prayer of the righteous, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You know, some, some people read that as a threat. Not me, I don't read it as a threat. I read it as a promise. That no matter what happens, no matter how tough life gets, no matter the difficulties we face, the sufferings, the challenges, God will care for his people who genuinely want to do what is right and good. He'll hear our cry for help. It's a promise, you see. It's a promise that when you feel like being divisive and you pray for harmony, you feel like being indifferent and you pray for sympathy, you feel like being hateful and you pray for love, you feel like you're apathetic but you pray for compassion and courage, you feel proud and you pray for humility, you feel vengeful and you pray for grace, you feel deceitful but you pray for honesty, you feel like doing evil but pray to do good, God who is watching will hear your prayer and give you strength and help you do what is right. Because he's on your side. He's on the side of those who know him, not on the side of those who do evil. Peter has a lot to say uh, in these few short verses. Uh, They're just packed full of stuff. But understand, he's simply confirming what he's been saying all throughout the letter. That as Christians, our conduct, the way that we live our lives every single day, will either validate or invalidate who we claim to be and who we claim to follow. He's saying that through faith in Jesus, God's grace changes us from the inside out. And our lives are gonna demonstrate that change, individually and corporately. And in a world where hate and greed and selfishness and and, and arrogance and revenge and violence seems to be the norm, the church should should be seen and experienced as a very strange place indeed a place where harmony and sympathy and love and compassion and humility and mercy and honesty and goodness and peace reign among God's people, ultimately making us the kind of community that so many in our world today are searching for and longing to be part of. And my prayer is that God will make us that kind of community. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, if we are honest before you,
we admit that our tendencies as human beings are toward arrogance and selfishness. Uh, we like and we want to have our own way. It's hard to submit our needs to the needs of others. Um, all of these things are, 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 are challenging for us because of our very brokenness. But thank you for Jesus who, who offers us grace and life, who never, who never gave his enemies what they deserved. He offered them what they didn't deserve, forgiveness. He's offered it to us. And we who have embraced it have, have experienced your grace and mercy. How can we live our lives any way different than extend those things to others? To live as your people, the church, in a world in need of, of love and, and, and compassion and, and humility, all of these things. I pray that you would, you would hear our prayer today. You would hear our cry for help and strength to be this, this kind of a people. May your grace indeed continue to change us from the inside out. And may the world see the difference. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen. That song is the story of my life. And um, my hope is that you, you get it. because what, what, what better time to figure it out, right? Holy Week. As we head toward Good Friday and Easter. That uh, Christianity is not, about, is not about your works. It's not about what you can do. It's not about your goodness. No one can be good enough. That's religion. Religion is crushing. It's debilitating. It's, de it's discouraging. I talked to someone recently. They told me they spent uh, like 17 years in their church. It was all about works, and, 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 and they were overwhelmed by it, and they just quit. They gave up on God and left. They found their way here, and the grace of God found them. And um, I hope it's found you. All you got to do is look for it and receive it and embrace it, and that's what it means to be a Christian. And if you don't get that, hey, man, what better time to think about it than Holy Week, yeah? Because uh, Easter's coming. And uh, it's all about what Jesus has done and the grace of God offered through him, through his resurrection. So uh, thanks for being here. I look forward to seeing you next weekend. Uh, look, if you're here and you you're still have questions about this grace deal, this Jesus thing, Christianity, or maybe you're just really struggling through some stuff in life, our prayer team will be up here following the service. Come and talk with them. They're here for you. Uh, they, they're gifted, and their gifts are for you to serve you. Uh, so uh, uh, make your way up. And um, in the meantime, I hope you have a great week, and I'll see you on Good Friday. Huh? Let me pray for you. And now, Lord, may we as your people, your family, the church, as we leave the building, may we go out into this world um, breathing in your grace and breathing out praise for you in such a way that those around us will see the difference. They'll hear the message of your love and grace in Jesus. They'll be pointed to him and your grace will find them. May that be true for your church today. May your hand of grace rest on your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.